آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين How's everybody? Alhamdulillah Any questions? <laughs> Cryptocurrency, my problem is I don't know enough. I'm still learning. Um, but uh, there, ha- there have been some fatwas back and forth about it. So I know that uh, one of the issues with the cryptocurrency is that it's, it's accessible by anybody. You know? So it's, it's something that's happening in the Muslim world now. But I, I'm, I'm too ignorant about the details of, of blockchain um, to, to give an opinion. The fatwa from Egypt's Darul Ifta is that it's haram. But my, I didn't get to read the whole fatwa, but my understanding is that it, they deemed it, they said that they spent 90 hours on the, fat, on the issue to, to, to write the fatwa. But the main issue seems to be because it's not regulated by the central bank. Not that the concept of crypto, uh, cryptocurrency, because paper money is just as, you know, uh, worthless as, uh, as you, know, you know, one could argue that the cryptocurrency with the blockchain is more, has more value, intrinsic value, than the paper money. But my, underst- and I, my fear is that when people read that, they're going to be like, oh, they don't understand, and, you know, about cryptocurrency, but the, the fatwa was very detailed. I just didn't have time to read it this week. But my, under, my initial understanding is that it's about regulation. And this is what cryptocurrency, one of the uh, byproducts of it is it circumvents the regulation. You know, and this is one of the issues. So. I think it's haram to lose money, but making money is okay. Haram to lose money, making money is okay. Of course. <laughs> so I, give me a little bit more time. And, but if, you, if somebody knows, please educate me. Help me, help me uh, you know, fast track the... You, has anybody that knows about these things, I would benefit from a conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and there's another one, Ripple now, and Ethereum, and and Bitcoin. There's several uh, attempts now. So, if somebody becomes rich on the cryptocurrency, you can give the mosque, you know, five percent. Sure. <laughs> uh, I just have two. One is kind of quick, and one's I don't know. It depends on you, I guess. Um, do you have any like suggestions for like zero books or like lectures, or whatever that you personally like that are super detailed? Not like I don't know, like elementary school level. I have recommendations for zero books or zero lectures, right? uh, uh, lectures. Definitely, uh, Sheikh Hamza's uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's The Life of Muhammad, Sallallahu uh, which is, uh, I think now, it was when I was growing up a cassette ta- set, but I think now it's maybe a CD or maybe even uh, downloadable, but uh, I, ha- I recommend that. Um, I obviously, of course, I recommend Martin Ling's book. Um, the English is a little uh, terse, but, but it's very well written. Uh, and then there's this new book, which I, I was 50-50 about, but I actually think is really nice. It's like that textbook called... Um, Brother Mohsen, you had this. Remember the Sira book? It was like a new, like textbook-like. 
What was it called? Do you remember the name of it? I can't remember the name, but um, it, it's it's written in a way that um, one can look up things quickly, you know, with charts and graphs and you know uh, things like that. It's not like very wordy. Uh, I can't remember the name. Maybe something. Let, let me look it up afterwards, and I'll, and I'll give it to you. So those. So the audio would be Sheikh Hamza's uh, in English, and then uh, Martin Ling's is like a standard. Uh, which is like a translation of you know Ibn Hisham, uh, more or less, and then this new book, uh, which I think is also good. Mm-hmm. So I would those those would be a starting place. Now, of course, Sira, uh, uh, you have to understand what is the Sira, so understand what you're getting. So the Sira is usually what we refer to as a chronological biography of the story of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu you know, starting from before he was born until the time of his passing, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. There are different genres of literature that talk about the Prophet, not just the Seerah. So another one is a, a body of literature that we call the Shama'il, or the special traits of the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi You know, talk about how he dressed, and how he looked, and how he ate, and how he uh, functioned in life, and you know, how he slept, and these type of things, the, the tools that he used, the horses that he rode, the camels, these type of things. Which is another aspect of the Prophet, sallallahu his personality, his, his life, which is also very important. Um, so, those type of books, like Imam Tirmidhi's book, um, and and uh, the, that genre of literature is is important. And there's another genre of literature called the khasais, which are the the, uh, the special traits of the Prophet Sallallahu Because the Prophet Sallallahu he had traits that that none of us have. He had he was a person, of course, he was a human to be sure. But there were things about him that none of us have. The Prophet Sallallahu could see behind him like he could see in front of him. None of us, unless I know him, but no one can do that. So that's a khasa'is, that's a special trait. The Prophet ﷺ had to pray to Hajjud. For us it's a sunnah, for him it was wajib, he had to pray. These type of things. So there's another literature, a body of literature, that talk about those internal or spiritual qualities of the Prophet ﷺ. So for us to understand him, we don't want to just know the chronology, but we want to know his personality and how he was and how he ate and how he lived and how he functioned and those special qualities. So those, those type of three. Uh, but that's just you know. I would argue you can find someone's personality, even the Prophet based on his biography. Of course, but the the Sira oftentimes do not does not delve in depending on how detailed it is does not delve into those details. Mm-hmm. It's more of like a you know day one, day two, day three that type of uh, of chronology. Of course, there's you know it's his life. Sallallahu Of course, you're going to learn about him, but the other books. Focus only on the personality, on the person, of his physical features, and how he was, and, and things like that. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, um, each type of, of genre of literature gives us something, uh, an aspect, and we want all of it. We don't want to just take one and, and not the other. But of course, you, you can glean all of that from the sira as well, depending on how detailed the book is. And um, my second question, uh, depending on how fast, how you can answer this. Um, how, do you have any tips for how to distinguish between tradition versus the religion itself? Like, what I mean, tradition, like, customs or practices that, like, we might have been raised in that may not necessarily be divine. It's more of, like, a difference of opinion. Like, just to give you an example, like, in Ramadan, I was with a Malaysian friend. And, you know, in Malaysia, they're, like, super pro-shakri. 
right? So we were praying Fajr, and I didn't know that in the Shafi'i Madhab they say you do the Kunut and Fajr. I didn't know that. And if you're from Malaysia, you do not disagree with Imam Shafi'i there. So, I mean, and, but my friend was, you know, from Malaysia. He lived in Malaysia, so he thought that this was Islam and that anybody who goes against that practice was going against Islam. You know, because that's how he's raised. So the issue of culture and religion is that you can't have religion without culture, and vice versa. So they, they, they're kind of stuck together, for better or for worse. So you can't, uh, you can't uh, practice Islam in a vacuum. You're going to have to practice it somewhere with people, and it's a communal religion, and, and, uh, and it transcends time and culture and these type of things. So the Sharia actually embraces the concept of custom and culture as part of a source of legislation. So when, we, when the fuqaha come to opine on issues, they will always look at what the cultural norm is on certain things. I mean, if there's a cultural thing that's just against the principles of Islam, then Islam won't accept it. That's different. But in general, uh, historically, that's been the case. What ends up happening in, in this example, for example, you go to Malaysia and everyone is a Shafi'i, but for them, the Shafi'i method is Islam. It's just like when you go to the subcontinent or Turkey, the Hanafi madhab is Islam. So if you walked into a mosque and like your head wasn't covered, you know, you've like committed like a, you know, a sin or something like that. Uh, so that's just, you know, literacy. We're not, sometimes we're not literate. And that's also part of cultures that you just, when there's a homogeneous society, you just sort of just take it that this is the way it is. So we should, I mean, the only way to, to know these things is to know, is to, to, to study and to know the differences or to ask questions and things like that. But um, one of the things that we can think about to help us is that one of the principles that we have is that because we have a plurality of opinions on a host of, on, on almost everything, we are, we are not allowed to criticize one another for following a valid opinion. We only are able to legitimately criticize one another if we violate something that is everyone agrees on. So, if I, for example, you know, said something like, um, <clears throat> you know, we can lie, or you know, it's okay to steal because we're in America, or something like that. You know, it's okay, it's America, the kufar, and something like that. Everyone be like, no, no, no one says that. You can't do that. You can't do that, right? But. I'm going to say the Khunut, or the Malikis, they have the Khunut in the second raka'ah of, of Fajr with just another takbira. So they're like, Allahu Akbar, and everyone goes down to Rukua, but they, they, they're like saying dua, so it's very confusing. So these type of things, <clears throat> we have to be educated. So when we see something that we don't understand, our default should be to ask, rather than to point the finger. But the Salafi type of people, they, they, they criticize. When they see something that doesn't work with their model of Islam, the, the, even to the point that they'll be like, oh, you're a kafir. That's not what we want. We just want, I don't understand. You know, I, I didn't grow up this way. Can you explain this to me? And, and that sort of quest, that's how we can, we can uh, sparse out the differences between what's cultural, what's religious, principle-based, or what's one interpretation of religion, you know, things like that. So not to be quick to, to criticize. Um, I don't know if that's what you were, were looking for, but but uh, would you recommend us reading different opinions on our own, or like asking other people on our own, or like what? Now, if you read different opinions on your own and stuff like that, you can end up becoming more confused. Yeah. 
So Allah says we Ask people that know when you don't know. So if you have if you're stuck with something, just ask somebody to make it easier because then it can become like a a hidden desire, like I want to know all of the nuances and the differences and, and it just that could be its own its own problem. We don't we don't want to we want all that really matters is that when we wake up to when we sleep we get through the day doing the best that we can. That's really what we're after. That's what Islam is here to do for us. Now some people have been blessed to, to know more and to study and to de- dedicate their, their life to this. And so those are the people we go to to ask. We don't all have to be like that. But if you try to do it on your own, uh, as we were saying last week, you know, like Nasr al-Din al-Albani and those type of people, you end up creating a mess. So we don't want to create this type of confusion. Now, I'm not saying that you can't learn, but, but it's, you have somebody's guidance or you know, have somebody sort of mentor you in that process so you can understand. Uh, understand the differences. In, in a plural community like this, actually one of the advantages of growing up as a minority in a country like this is we actually see a lot of these cultural differences growing up. Yeah. Uh, and in the mosque, you see different people, they pray different ways, and uh, during the Ramadan or these type of um, festival, communal gatherings, we see different ways of doing things. Um, you know, usually the way we do the khutbah here and for Eid usually follows the Shafi'i school. Now, if I was Hanafi and I gave the khutbah, it would look different, even for Eid. And people are like, what's going on? What happened? You know, he messed up or something like that. So, even, even here, the same thing can happen. You just get used to doing it a, a certain way. Um, so, you just have to ask, you know. And, um, uh, and, and people like me, my job is to try to answer, to educate, and, you know, maybe shake things up. Maybe one time I should do the khutbah differently and be like, what's going on? So, he messed up. The, the, the difference the, the difference of these opinions are based on how the different schools weigh evidence of of different parts of the Quran and different parts of the of the hadith. So everyone has their proof. Everyone has you know, so one school will say uh, I interpret this hadith as it doesn't mean he did it all the time. Another will say, no, this means he did it all the time. So, they're all looking at the same body of evidence, but the way they interpret the evidence is different. So, that's why we have these differences of opinions. So, for the Shafi'is, we, in the federal time, we, we, ha- we, we part of the uh, um, intervals of the prayer is that we do the dua al-qunut. Even to the point that if we forget, we should pr- do the two sajda of sahu at the end. For Imam Abu Hanifa, it's not the case. But Imam al-Shafi himself, when he went to Baghdad, and he prayed at the tomb of Imam Abu Hanifa, he himself left the qunut out of respect for Imam Abu Hanifa. So the, the, the ulama amongst themselves had a lot of respect for, for each other. But their own... Their job was to weigh the evidence based on the principles that they've established for those schools. So that's why we have these differences of opinion. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just it's how you weigh the opinion. So, with regards to methods, are we, in general, found by one method is like, for example, for certain interpretations, uh, I find uh, Shafi'i method to be more tuned with my own uh, um, logic. Are we kind of then bound by the, the Shafi'i for the rest of all 
the questions we have, or can we, can we, can we, I mean, what, what mm-hmm. is it? You know, because sometimes we need to go with this, not that. Sure, sure. So there's a few things. One, that we have to understand when it, when it comes to madahib and, and what we follow. All of the issues of fiqh, there are about two million issues of fiqh. Okay? When I say I'm a Shafi, it doesn't mean that every one of these two million I follow the Shafi school. It means that most of my worship, most of my life, the way I think usually follows this school of thought. So it's not like you're in, like in the mafia, you have to stay and you can't leave. It's not like that. The other thing is the issues of madahib and following madahib are for the students that are studying and the ulama that practice the sharia, not for general people. The general person, their madhab is, is the madhab of the person that they ask. Madhab al-Ammi, madhab mufti. The, the average person, their madhab is whatever the mufti tells them. The mufti's job is to give them the best opinion for their circumstance now. So that's their madhab, they just follow that. The issue of the madhab is an academic, uh, scholastic discipline. You have to study and you have to, you know, you have all of these little traditions that no one knows about and and we make fun of the other madahib secretly, and you know, it's, it's a culture, it's like a culture, but it's part of studying, it's how, we, it's how we learn Islam, it's how we learn the fiqh. But when you're an average person, you don't have this type of training, you ask, and the person you ask, that's who you follow. That's the second issue. The third issue is that there's no problem with taking from this and taking from that, as long as these are legitimate opinions. That's what I was saying earlier. So we cannot criticize anybody for following anything in Islam that is a legitimate opinion. Because these are all, for us, equally correct. So, of course, in some madahib, these some issues are easier for us to follow than others. This is normal. And so, we should seek that which makes our Islam easy to follow. Because this is the, the time that we live in, this is what we need. This is not the time to find the most difficult opinion to follow, because we don't want to lose Islam for ourselves or for our children's generation. So our job is to find that which is easy, that which is most flexible, that which is compatible with our, most compatible with our way of life, and follow it. This, this age that we live in, live in here. So, so it's, not, it's not the mafia, don't worry, you can, you, can get, you can go in and you can go out, no one is going to say anything. Thank you for the last insight yeah. about the age yeah, alhamdulillah. So, I remember during this book today, you were, you were like, kind of like categorizing like three main levels of knowledge. Like, like you're talking about like the Mufti and like the Adam and the Adam. The Adam? The Dai? And the Adam? The Yeah. So, sometimes you hear like different terms to describe like people's knowledge, like Imam and like Shaykh and Mufti and like. So do those labels like mean? So most of those labels have to do with American Islam. Okay, so when I'm, what I was saying in the khutbah was the alim is like, uh, just to make things simpler, like rabbi. What is a rabbi in, in, in rabbinic Judaism is a learned person, because there's a lot of similarities between rabbinic Judaism and, and, and Sunni Islam in this issue. The rabbi is not somebody who's ordained. You know, he's just like a, a, a very you know, well-trained scholar of Talmudic law. The alim, but the rabbi, different types of rabbis that have different levels. So alim, for us, that's, that's the religious figure in Islam, that's what they're called, they're called a scholar. Not a person that's ordained like a priest, 
you know, or a bishop or something like that, but a scholar, a learned person. Now, there are uh, adjunct professors, there are associate professors, there are tenured professors, and, you know, I don't know, university professors, you know, beyond that. So, the ulama are the same, there, there are different categories of, of ulama. They're not all the same. Not all ulama are created equal. Some of them are, are you know, like me, you know, I barely, I'm like in and out, in and out. You know, for me, the, 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 it's a porous uh, barrier. For others, they're like, you know, muftis and things like that. So, all of, all of the, the learned people, they fall under the category of the ulama, the scholars. The mufti is a type of function. The mufti issues a non-binding legal opinion on an issue that's presented to them. Okay? So, an issue that's been presented that does not exist in the past. If something, if somebody asks me a question, uh, this is not a fatwa. I'm just giving her the answer based on this madhab or that madhab. But if somebody says cryptocurrency, there is no cryptocurrencies in the Quran or cryptocurrency in the Hadith. So that means you have to exert ijtihad. You have to exert a, a, a legal, a, a rational, independent legal effort to examine the fiqh and examine the ayat and examine the hadith and all precedents and all this stuff to derive a ruling. That's what a fatwa is. But it's not binding. A faqih is, is a jurist in general. The faqih can be a mufti if they're at that level or they can just be a jurist. They're just giving you, they can teach you one school of law or a body of knowledge and things like that. So, those are all terms and different levels inside, underneath the banner of alim, underneath the banner of scholar. The guy is the is the preacher, is the motivator, as I was saying in, in, in the khutbah. Uh, not necessarily an expert in the law or this or that or the tafsir, but, but has a cursory knowledge, must have a cursory knowledge of, of what they're talking about. But their, their, their point is not to, to necessarily teach. Their point is to, or their function is to motivate, to keep you motivated, to keep you in check and and things like that. And then the Abid is the one that's, that's overwhelmed by their worship and their piety and their closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and things like that. When we say shaykh, it's, it's like a, um, you know, a, a term of respect that we say for a learned person. The imam, classically the imam is this very high level inside a school of law, the imam of the madhab, like the leader of the madhab. But in our modern parlance, we usually refer to it as the person that leads the prayer, or the person that leads the congregation, or something like that. So it depends on the usage. Without getting into too many terms, but is that kind of what you were after? Okay. Yes. Alaykum salam. <laughs> in Islam, we have two main uh, sects. The difference, what's the difference between Wahhabi, Sufi, and Sunni? So, in Islam, we have two main sects. The largest, about 80, uh, 85% of Muslims are Sunni Muslims, like us. And then about 15, 20%, maybe more, maybe less, are Shia. These are the two main groups of Islam. Okay? The difference between them goes back to 
the issues with Imam Ali and the Khilafah and, and uh, after Imam Ali and Muawiyah and Sayyidina Hussein and all of that. And from this we have, alhamdulillah, in the last hundred years or so, reconciled a lot of the differences between the Sunnis and the Shias. But the Sunni Muslims, like us, take Islam from all of the Sahaba, all of the companions. Whereas the Shia, they take Islam only from the descendants of the Prophet So in some of our fiqh, in some of how we act and we practice Islam, there are some differences based on the body of evidence that we take. And there are some theological issues, but... but so, everything that you mentioned, Wahhabis, uh, all of this is in the family of Sunni Islam. So the first category is Sunni Islam. The Sufis, or Tasawwuf, is the spiritual dimension of Sunni Islam. As the Prophet said in the Hadith, when Gabriel asked him, What is Ihsan? Mal Ihsan al Ihsan and Ta'bud Allah, ka'annaka tara, fa'in lam ta'kun tara, Perfection or spiritual excellence is that you worship Allah as if you see Him, and if you don't know that He sees you. So in Sunni Islam, we have three branches of knowledge. We have fiqh. And in that we have four of madhabs. The Hanafis, the Shafi'is, the Malikis, and the Hanbalis. And then we have Aqidah, we have Theology, and we have two schools of thought in Sunni Islam. The Ash'aris, the majority, and the Maturidis. And then the third is we have Tasawwuf. Going back to Imam al-Junaid, radiallahu anhu. These three branches of Fiqh, Aqidah, and Tasawwuf, these three make up Sunni Islam. So tasawwuf is just the spiritual expression, the, the, the operating manual of is how do you practice Islam, that's tasawwuf. Is that clear? Okay. So everybody has to have a little bit of tasawwuf in their life. Everybody has to have a little bit of fiqh in their life. Everyone has to have a little bit of aqidah. Of the three, what's the most important for the average Muslim is the tasawwuf. Because that's what's on the inside, and that's how you practice, and that's how you worship Allah. The Wahhabis, this is a historical movement that goes back to the late 18th century of Muhammad Abdul Wahhab, who was a uh, religious leader in the eastern part of, of the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, he doesn't like what I'm saying, so he, he found people like me, and he killed them. And when he found that he was not going to be successful, he united with somebody who had guns and weapons and things like that, who was the Al Saud family. And the Al Saud family and the Al Sheikh family, which is the family of Muhammad Abdul Wahab, they are the, what formed the, the first Saudi state, and then the second Saudi state, which is the, the country that we have until today. Do you have far as No, no. Hussein Hassan, this is at the time of the Sahaba. Muhammad Abdul Wahab died in 1790-something, some 94 or something like that. This is, this is recent now. This has nothing to do with Sunni and Shia and, and nothing. This is a political uh, movement in, that has given rise to the modern Saudi state. And, and, and we are trying to deal with this mess ever since then till now. Yes, there are the people that say we don't celebrate Maulid and we don't do anything. 
Yes. Yes. You said that uh, possible is just the assuming, but I met a lot of people. Uh, there is some uh, there is some tasawwuf in Shia Islam, but it's not a dominant. Um, it's not a dominant practice because the Shias they have a different integration of marifa of of sort of inner knowledge gnosis that has to do with the reconciliation of Islamic philosophy and and Muslim theology. And they have like the school of Ishraq, you know, Mullah Sadr and, and all of that. So it's a little bit different where it's, it's taught as a living philosophy and not necessarily based in orders the way it is in Sunni Islam. There is some, this is true, there is some overlap in some of the turuk like the Rafa'iyya and stuff like that. But there are many Shias that um, uh, would be offended like if we said that there's tasawwuf in, in Shiism because they see it as like a very Sunni type of, of, of thing. So just to be respectful, you know, just make that... But there is, of course, you know, you find the uh, grades of gray everywhere. I mean, there's no... These are not, you know, boundaries. Le- the, these are just oversimplifications. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, please elaborate a little bit on the three names. You mentioned in Fakha we have the four... What questions is Fiqh addressing? And what questions are... Fiqh addressing what do you do? Anything that requires action, that's Fiqh. How do you Fiqh? How do you pray? How do you make wudu? How do you pay zakah? Uh, you know, uh, there's dua al-qunut, uh, cryptocurrency. All of this is Fiqh Sharia. Actions. So when Gabriel came and he asked the Prophet, Man Islam... Islam and Tashhad Allah ilaha illallah wa antaqim is salah action wa antasum Ramadan action zakah and hajj action so then Gabriel said Iman Iman what is Iman? Iman or theology that's what you believe in and tu'min billahi wa kutubihi wa rusuli what you believe in something that's on the inside I believe in the unseen I believe in Allah Allah is one Nothing. What does this mean? I believe in Allah. Allah has uh, attributes and has uh, uh, characteristics. And uh, what do I believe about Yom Al Qiyamah? What do I believe about Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu This is all belief. Ihsan is how you take the action with belief and practice it in your life. What you do every day. This is Ihsan or, or Tasawwuf. This is what it's about. How you take these two and actually implement them to lead, uh, you know, a balanced, healthy life. In this process, over history, we've had different interpretations in different schools. I mean, in Sharia, we have four main schools. But in actuality, there have been over 90 schools of fiqh throughout Islamic history. So a very rich discussion of the Sharia throughout human history. And in Aqidah, or theology, we have these two main schools, the Ash'aris and the, and the Maturidis. And in Tasawwuf, uh, we have endless numbers of, of turuq, endless numbers of ways that, have, that are throughout history. Because Tasawwuf has to do with each individual's journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because we're all different, we'll all come to Allah in a slightly different way. 
my way might not be exactly your way. Because we all have different uh, makeup. Our psychological makeup is different. And our backgrounds is different. Our emotional states are different. So what works with me might not be what works with you. What works with you might not be what works with her. We're all Muslims. We're all doing the same thing, but, it, but we're built differently. So the journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is individual. You need guidance to take you, but your journey is individual. You can't, you, can't, you know, uh, ride a, a, with somebody else. It's got to be you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So because of that, there is an infinite number of ways of how you can take Islam and practice it in your life. Now generally speaking, we have these orders and we have mashayikh and we have different ways and dhikr and things like that that we sort of, you know, we do t- together. But really what's happening is that's just sort of the catalyst to elicit from you what you need to unlock your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This last point is, in my humble view, essential today so we can form, live in a community and understand each other and not judge each other. The fact that each one of us somehow chooses to combine action and belief to implement or execute this uh, mean it's very important for everybody to understand because short of that we start judging right? we start passing judgment on why we do this thing this way so I, I, I humbly think that this is an essential clarification and, and message that needs to come sure it, but it's not just about we don't want to judge each other it's also about each person has to be free to find their way to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's what Allah means, لا إكراه في الدين. There's no compulsion in religion. You can't force somebody to be, I can't force my kids to be good. I have to teach them and show them the way. I mean, when they're infants, you know, you have to discipline them. And, and, but I'm saying, as adults, we can't force each other. All we can do is show each other the truth as best we can, and then we follow what works. But because we're each individual, each one is different. We're always a different combination of dhikr, a different combination of Islam will work with us in different ways. Very much like wavelengths. Because in our body is a, is a combination of energy. There's, a, there's an energy to life that flows through us. And energy and mass, mass is, is, uh, uh, mass is uh, uh, wavelengths of different frequencies. So when you read the Qur'an, or you read the dhikr, or you pray a certain way, or you fast... There is some type of energy that you are getting from this act of devotion. This wavelength of this energy that you get from prayer, you get from reading this verse, or you get from saying this dick will, will impact me and you and everybody differently, depending on what's already inside us. And because of that, the, the path to Allah is going to be individual. Now there are overarching principles that we use, you know, uh, I'm not going to say that my path to Allah is through, like, you know, whiskey or something like that, and that, that's not going to work, but given the, the, the basics, everyone's path is going to be, to be different. So, Islam is really very plural, and very wide, and very expansive, and, and the human experience is something that the ulama respected throughout Islamic history. You know, all of the, this is what I'm talking about, this is based on human experience. How Muslims before us experienced Islam, experienced the Qur'an, experienced the, 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 the teachings of the Prophet This has all been catalogued for us. 
for us to benefit from and to see what, what the human being can achieve through these things throughout the ages. So it's, it's based on Qur'an and Sunnah and also on the experience of the people as they practice Islam. Uh, when it comes to non-Muslims entering Mecca and Medina, what are the other Muslims' positions on it? And the only reason I'm asking is because uh, Abu Hanifa, Imam Abu Hanifa, was referred to saying that non-Muslims were free to enter. Yeah, uh, the, in the Hanafis, it's okay for non-Muslims to, to enter, as, and, you know, especially if they are, you know, a, uh, experts in in something that the city needs. You know, uh, uh, I don't know. Even the current government doesn't. Uh, the current government is, uh, you know... Um, yeah, there's a difference of opinion in, in the madhabs of, about non-Muslims entering, uh, without doubt. Um, uh, for different reasons, because of the verses about, you know, after the conquest of Mecca, the verses revealed that, you know, the, the, the disbelievers not to approach the, the haram and things like that. Um, but throughout... Again, this is one of those interesting things. Despite what's in the books throughout Islamic history, there have been many non-Muslims that have visited Mecca and Medina, and many of the and many of them, you know, have either snuck in or just sort of walked in, and you know, they've written about their, what they saw and what they think, you know, you know, going back centuries. So there's a there's a tradition of of European travelers um, uh, going, and I think maybe I, I shared with everybody one time the story of the of the crusaders that tried to steal the body of the Prophet ﷺ from the grave. And Nuruddin al-Zinki, the... Yeah. So there, there were crusaders that were uh, in Medina digging, you know, digging away. So, throughout Islamic history, there has been a in and out, you know. But if you've been to Mecca and Medina, there's really nothing to do there if you're not Muslim. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's a very Muslim place. So, yeah, but non-Muslims can go if, if, if need be. When the, when the Kaaba was um, taken hostage by this uh, guy, Juhaynam or whatever, in the, in the 80s, I think the, there was like some French special forces that went in and... They made them convert to Islam. Yeah, whatever, you know, made them convert to Islam. <laughs> so, I mean, you know... They were like, stay the Shahada, man, you Yeah, you know, so maybe, I don't know. But I mean, so, you know, that, that was a, like an emergency war, you know, that's when you need... You know, that was a bad situation. Anybody? Yeah. What's the big difference between the Salafis and the other Muslims? The difference between the, the Salafis and the other Muslims. The first thing is that Salafism is not a Madhab. The Salaf is a time period that we, we refer back to the first generation, or the first two, or first three generations, or the first five centuries of Islam, differences of opinion. Not everyone of the companions was of the ulama. They were all... Uh, great people because they saw the Prophet and they lived with him but they were not all equal in their knowledge of their understanding of Islam the Salafis or the Salafi movement this modern phenomenon they look back and they see the Salaf or, or that time period as a madhab as, as we're going to do exactly what they did but that's not how that's not how we understand Islam this is a time period we look back and we respect because these people saw the Prophet and the Prophet said the best generation is this generation and the ones after me and the ones after that. So we respect and we honor them as, as luminaries that took the message and, and, and applied it. But when it comes, as we were talking earlier about the alim and the abid, not all of the sahaba were from the ulama. 
As a matter of fact, only maybe less than 1% of the Sahaba were mujtahids. So the fuqaha amongst the Sahaba were very few, less than 20. So all of the Sahaba were going to these, to after the, the passing of the Prophet for them to learn, to ask questions. And in the tabi'in, they were learning from these people, and this is how we get the different madahib, because there were different schools and different opinions amongst the Sahaba. So this Salafi idea that we are going to somehow wipe out all of Islamic history and go back to the early generation, this is not Islam. This is not what the Prophet taught us. So uh, it's a misguided, uh, a misguided redaction of history to go back to this early period. The Muslim is supposed to live now. Not yesterday, and not tomorrow, but now. The Prophet ﷺ said one of the things that we learn from the Psalms of David, the Zabur of Dawood, is that the believer is knowledgeable in their time, uh, and knowledgeable in what they need. Meaning now. What do I need now? I have to be a person of, of the now, not, not of yesterday. Not even for necessarily tomorrow, but of the now. So we look to the past, we honor the past, we honor, you know, the, the people that have come before us, the generations have come before us, but our task is to take all of this and apply it to them now, for, for what we need right now. So, they don't do that. And they've said, you know, very funny things, of if, uh, because unfortunately I have to spend a lot of time reading this, this nonsense. But they say, the earth is flat, and, and they say electricity is haram, and and they want to destroy the grave of the Prophet wasallam, and, and all of this from, from this mentality of we're going to go into the past. But that's not what the Prophet wasallam taught us. He taught us to live now. Yes, the Wahhabi, yes, it's the same general idea, but the Wahhabis is something, is a historical movement related to this person and this location, and, uh, you know, so they're called the Wahhabis because of that. But all of this is under this idea of Salafism. That somehow the reason Islam sucks is because we, we inherited this middle period. So we just erase it and we'll, and we'll go back to when it was good. This is the general thinking. This is, this is not how human history works. And this assumption that the middle part of Islam was bad, and this is the result of why Islam is bad now, this is not correct. In every age, in every place in the Muslim world, there were ulamat that were thinking, I mean, I'm just telling you now, there are ulamat now spending hours studying blockchain and cryptocurrency. These people, they're not foolish. They know what they're talking about, they know what they need to do. So, uh, Islam is bad because we, have, we got lazy. This is the Orientalist sort of understanding that has infected the, the Muslim psyche. Islam has always been honorable, has always been great, has always been noble, has always been forward-looking. Forward and so, therefore, we should be honorable and great and forward-looking as well. You had something? Yeah. I mean, uh, what he was referring to, I read, some people in Saudi Arabia want to make Wahhabis a Muslim, and they are pushing for Wahhabis. They, yes, they want to make Wahhabis a Muslim, and uh, in, in 2016 there was a big conference in Chechnya uh, to define Sunni Islam. And this idea was offered, and everybody rejected this idea. Because this is not the definition of Islam, or it's not a madhab, it's nothing. It's, 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 it's a historical, you know, political movement. It has nothing to, it's not a madhab. Madhab, 
when we say there's a madhab in Islam, that means that there are certain principles that I use to interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So when I read the Qur'an, I have a certain glasses on. These glasses are called the Shafi'i glasses. What are the, what's the prescription of these glasses? Certain principles. La darar wa la birar. There are certain principles that I have when I read. When I read the, when I read the Quran and the Sunnah with the glasses of, of Malik, a different prescription. The lens is a little bit different. They all read the Quran and the Sunnah, but there are certain principles. Can I make a new madhab now? The ulama they say no, because the intellectual combination of principles has already been exhausted. You know like when you have one, two, three, like how many combinations of these numbers can you make? One, two, three, one, three, two, three, two, three. So the ulama, they say we have a certain basket of principles, these have already been exhausted. So we use these principles, all of them together, to interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah for the now. But I can't make a new madhab. That's, that's over. But what's not over is the process of, of ijtihad, the process of using these principles to derive rulings for the here and now. So this idea that, I, that I'm going to make Wahhabism is, is ludicrous because it's impossible. There's no room to make any madhab. They're just trying to legitimize what they're trying to do. So the Alamad, they told the Wahhabis, they say, yani, you can be Hanbali. Say you follow the Hanbali madhab. Because this is one of their claims. They said, no, we're not uh, Salafi, we're Hanbali. Okay, so follow what Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and the madhab said, but they're following other than the Hanbali madhab. But it's, uh, you know, it's one of the, our rules. Inshallah, we, we put a big band-aid over it, inshallah, one day. The Wahhabi is a type of Salafi. You can look at it that way. Salafi is a broader term, and there are different types. Not to be too polemic, I, uh, but I don't want anyone to be offended. Christmas did not pass because they still in two days is the Christmas of the Eastern Church because I'm, because I, as an Egyptian Christmas for me is January the seventh. This is the thing, with, with Christmas, nobody knows when Jesus was born, السلام, even the Christians. No, Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu we know. We know when he was born. He, he, was, born, he was born in Rabi al-Awwal. There is no dispute about this. There is dispute about what is the exact day. Was it 8? Was it 9? Was it 10? Was it 12? That's different. 
But the Prophet Sayyidina Muhammad was born in Rabi' al-Awwal, Aam al-Fil, the year of the elephant. And he entered into Medina on his birthday in Rabi' al-Awwal, and he died, or he passed Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on his birthday. We don't say that the Prophet died, because the Prophet is alive. Right? Hadir, Nadir. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I'm coming. And this is one of the miracles of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He is the only Prophet that we know with certainty when he was born, and when he lived, and where he lived, and where he passed, and where he's buried. When Constantine converted to Christianity, he found there was this uh, pagan holiday in this time. Uh, Apollo's this, or Artemis, whatever. Something. So, they said we will replace this holiday that everyone is used to with the birth of Christ, alayhi salam. And there are two calendars in the Western world. The original calendar is the Julian calendar. <coughs> and then one of the popes, because the Julian calendar has a astronomic uh, deficiency with how the year is calculated and needs an extra day or something like that. So the uh, Gregor, or the Pope Gregor, the whatever, he has the Gregorian calendar. This is the calendar that we follow, January, February. But some of the churches, they do not follow the Gregorian calendar, they still follow the Julian calendar. So in the Eastern churches, like in Egypt and the um, uh, Armenians, and I think the Russians, Christmas is January the 7th. And for the Latin churches, the European churches, Christmas is December the 25th. As for the day of when Christ was born, alayhi salam, this is a day that the Qur'an itself honors. Salamun alayya yawmu yulit. Peace upon me the day I was born. So anything that has to deal with the Anbiya, we honor and we respect. So if Christmas is meant to be the day in which we remember and respect the birth of Sayyidina Isa salam, then it is a day that we honor and that we respect and, and, and things like that. As for the relationship between us, specifically and our Christian brothers and sisters, is that our obligation is to keep ties and to have friendship and to build uh, bridges of understanding and to build a, a, a larger community than ourselves. We have to extend and we have to find common ground and we have to congratulate them and wish them happy holidays. It's very important, especially if you uh, come from a part of the Muslim world in which there are large non-Muslim minority groups. For these Muslims, the obligation, the Islamic obligation is to protect them and to make them comfortable and to make them uh, safe and especially in the time in which we live, live together. So this idea of not saying uh, Merry Christmas and uh, this is all nonsense. This is all nonsense. It has nothing to do with Islam. And we, and we don't want to bring this into the mosque because this is, not what we, this is not what we were taught by our teachers. This is not what the Prophet ﷺ taught us. Yes, because Allah made Moses and Bani Israel cross and Ashura, as we talked about last week, so the Prophet Sassan fasted this day out of thanksgiving. Yes. And that's actually what we remember when we fast Ashura, we remember. Yes. Anybody else? Yeah. 
Well, we lost that because we forgot about what's on the inside. So Islam starts on the inside and grows out. Just like a tree or a flower or a crop starts in the ground with roots and then it grows, it grows up. But without the roots, whatever that uh, life is will, will wither and die. And without watering it and feeding it, it will die. So Islam gr- starts on the inside. When the Arabs came, when the tribes came to the Prophet Wasallam. Allah says in the Quran, قَالَتِ الْعَرَابُ amanna." The Arabs come to the Prophet and they say, we believe. And then Allah says, قُلْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا وَلَكِنْ قُولُوا أَسْلَمْنَا وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانَ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ Don't say you believe, say you've just become Muslim because Iman, faith has not grown in the heart yet. So Islam starts in the inside and then grows out. Whatever you see on somebody or whatever you see somebody's actions, this is a... a a sign of what's on the inside. The Arabs, they say that the tongue is the translator of the, of the heart. Turjaman al-Nisan, Turjaman al-Qalb. The tongue only articulates what's already on the inside. So when somebody cuts you off, and you go crazy, that's what's on the inside of you. That rage, that's what's on the inside of you. In those moments, that's when you can test how you are on the inside. So why do we, or why do some Muslims focus on Outer things are not inner things because we forgot about the inner stuff. We forgot about this tasawwuf that we talked about, this ihsan that the Prophet taught us about. That's what Islam is, that's what we need. Because that's what Allah says will save us on Yom al Qiyamah, Salim. The only people that will be saved on, that, on, on judgment day are the people that have a sound heart. That's what matters, is what's on the inside. So we, that's, we've, we've lost this tradition of focusing on, on that, and growing that, and, and watering that. And that's what we're trying to revive, revive here. No one here has, has, is, is like that, in this, in this mosque. We have every stripe of person in this mosque. No one's ever said you're not welcome, or anything like that. And this is how it was with the Prophet Sallallahu community. People would come, and he would accept them, and... And they would, they would learn and we, we all grow together. So that's what matters, not what's on the outside. I mean, what's on the outside, everything matters because the Prophet gave us guidance for all of these things. But Islam has to grow from in to out, not from out to in. Good care. We're talking about the Prophets. Well, we're trying to. I mean, not doing a very good job, but. Okay, yeah, we can talk about good, good character and um, uh, maybe um, uh, Sheikh Hamza's translation of Purification of the Heart is because uh, it's in English is an accessible book and it's actually not that long. Um, that might be a, a good book to to go through together. Uh, it talks about those things, inshallah. Okay, we could do that next. If we get through, I mean, we're still we haven't finished Moses yet. Anybody have anything else? I mean, I don't even know if there's time for Moses. I thought we were going to get to... Should we do some Moses? Okay, so we've crossed the Red Sea, and Pharaoh is gone. And as I said last week, this is really where the, the story...
not that the story begins, but this is the another chapter, another major chapter in the story of Moses السلام, and Bani Israel. So up until now, it's really been, been about Moses' journey. You know, uh, from you know, being cast in the Nile and the, uh, away from his mother to being found and growing up and then him finding prophethood and things like that and then Aaron, his brother, becoming a prophet. It's really been about Moses and Harun. Now it's going to be about Moses' endless uh, journey with his people uh, and all of the things that he has to put up with. In this uh, part of the story, after they cross, a few things happen. Now, Bani Israel are without a home, without, you know, they probably only have whatever they could carry, you know, so all of their worldly, or most of their worldly possessions are gone. Uh, not much food, not much water, that kind of thing. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that He blesses and, and gives these people this sustenance. So He gives them the manna and the salwa. And the manna, manna is like some kind of um, bread type of thing for breakfast, and salwa is like some kind of uh, flying you know, dove or something like that for dinner. Uh, it provides them with water. You know, Moses uh, strikes with his staff and twelve springs come from the water. Uh, it's maybe uh, the summertime in the Sinai area, it's very hot, so Allah provides them the shade. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran of all of these things that He provides Bani Israel with. You know, He's providing them with food, He's providing them with drink, He's providing them with shade. And in this early part of the story, Moses goes to the Moses is always talking with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why he's called Kalimullah, the one who spoke to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and there is a version of the Ten Commandments in Surah Al-An'am, uh, verse 151 to 153. More or less the same commandments. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is telling us, you know, we, we, I did all of this stuff. And Bani Israel, the people that are with Moses, they're getting a little like cabin fever. They don't like the food. Uh, you know, when are we going to get to where we're going? You know, can we have something else to eat? Um, you talk to God. We want to talk to God. You saw God. We want to see God. And there's all this banter back and forth. And one of the lessons, and I'm in the interest of time, I'm just sort of summarizing. One of the lessons that we can draw from this is that sometimes we want something. And sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fulfills that want, but in another way, in a way that we're not necessarily rethought. And our job is to be able to see when Allah provides us with what we asked for, and accept that what we have is what's good for us in the long run. So we are specific when we want something. Allah, you know, help me with this. And you, you need to be specific when you make dua. But the way that Allah fulfills that might be a way that you weren't expecting. Uh, and you might want something really bad, but at the end that's not going to be good for you. Allah closes that door and opens something else. So for these people, they have no food, they have no drink, they have no shelter, but Allah provides all of this, but He doesn't give them like shelter like, like the mosque shelter. He gives them the shade. They're, they're hungry, they want to eat, you know, beans and rice and whatever, you know, uh, uh, the food that they're used to eating in Egypt, but Allah gives them something else. But it's still food. They want to drink something Allah gives in the spring. So, the lesson for us when we read these verses and we read this part of the story 
is for us to realize, and this is hard, I admit this is hard, because when you want something you get fixated on, I want it, I want it like this. But sometimes Allah brings it to you but a different way. The disposition of the believer is to see that what Allah has given you, or maybe even what Allah has closed, is to ultimately be in your benefit. And that means that we have to trust Allah. We have to trust that Allah, when we ask for something, He's, he, he's, not, he's not trying to screw with us. He's not trying to mess us up. But we don't know what we ask for, where it will lead to. And I'm sure if we think about our own lives, we'll find many examples of, of things like this. Uh, you want this, but this didn't work out, this worked out. Uh, you know, um, and, and maybe it's, it's most manifest if you think about the painful moments in your life, in times where you've, you've had some difficulty or you've had some suffering and time has passed and then you look back and you see all of the lessons that you got from that. And you might not have gotten all of those lessons if everything was peachy keen. But you would have only grown that resilience if you went through that. As difficult and as painful even, even as it is to remember that. So that's, those are some of the thoughts or some of the lessons of that part of the story. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always giving us after the passage of, of, of the people of Moses is always telling us of all of the favors that he's done. And then they're always responding, well, we want to eat something else, we want this, we want that. The biggest challenge is that when Moses goes to receive what ends up becoming like the Ten Commandments, like the first of the revelation, he's gone for 40 days. So in that time, Moses, he tells Aaron, okay, you're in charge. So you, you stay, I'm going to go climb the mountain. You stay and, and you, know, you, you lead the people. And that reminds us and that teaches us, you know, the importance of leadership and succession and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, there has to be somebody that's making decisions. And because of the, of the uh, captivity of, of these people in, in, under the tyranny of Pharaoh for so long and their exposure, there is a little bit of a desire to inculcate polytheism in the belief. So they're, they're totally happy being away from Pharaoh but they kind of want to have some kind of idol to worship. So, because Moses is gone for so long, I mean, 40 days, uh, the, one of the people, he has this idea, okay, why don't we take all of our jewelry and all of our metal and melt it and weld it together and build like some kind of like idol that we can worship. Because Moses just left us. You know, well, where is he? He's gone and his God has gone with him and, and we want to worship something. And when Moses comes back, and they over they overwhelm Harun. You know, Harun is, is sort of trying to keep you know everyone together without losing it. So when Moses comes back and he sees this, he's very upset because you know what, what's going on, and and we know that part of the story. But the issue for us, the lesson for us, is that when it comes to belief, we have to be careful. Belief is not necessarily something that's trendy. They wanted to follow what was trendy. What was common? What was trendy for them is why everyone has a golden calf that they worship that whistles. Why can't we have a golden calf that whistles? They weren't content with what Moses gave them. I mean, but think about what they've been through. They've been through the slavery, and then all of these unbelievable things happened with Moses and Pharaoh, and then the, these signs of the frogs and the blood and all of that we talked about, and then the, the ocean, uh, the sea parts, and Pharaoh dies. 
after all of this, this is a sign for them that, you know, this person, Musa is, is, is telling the truth. But it wasn't trendy. And in our day and age, this is a message that we have to really think about. Because Islam is not necessarily, tre- definitely not trend- trendy in a bad way. So, for us to hold on to our faith, we have to, uh, this question is, was important about what's on the inside is what matters. And sometimes we weave into Islam ideas that are not necessarily Islamic. And, and if we leave them long enough, it, it sort of develops into like a habit, a cultural norm, that we just end up assuming where this is Islam and how it's always been. And that's why we always want to shake it up a little bit for ourselves so that we make sure that our Islam is, is as pure as possible, uh, as wholesome as, ho- as possible. Now, I'm not saying that everything trendy is bad. No, that, that's not the, the point. But when it comes to issues of belief and things like that, we want to be careful. So this is just one of the exam- one of the lessons from this story. So Moses goes and he comes back, and he's very upset, and um, he tries to bring the people back together. Uh, there's like this, you know, big like uh, terrible incident where you know he's making everyone repent for this, you know, idolatry. So he wants to make a big atonement for this act, so he picks 70 of the people that are with him, that were the purest, that were the best of, of the people at the time, and they're going to go uh, and, you know, like make a tawbah in like the mountain area where Moses receives this revelation. So they go with him, and they do the same thing with him, but in a different way. They're like, well, how come you talk to Allah? We want to talk to Allah. Well, you see Allah. We, we want to see Allah. And that's where we have this incident when Moses asks, you know, Allah to manifest, and uh, Allah says, well, you can't behold me. You, the, the human in this realm cannot behold the uh, entity of the divine. It would, it, would, it would destroy us. But Allah says, you know, look, cast your gaze on this mountaintop, and I will manifest. A manifestation of Allah will appear on this mountain. And then that happened when the mountain, you know, was you know, destroyed into, into rubble and they all pass out and things like that. So this, this part of the story, all, this is what's going on back and forth, back and forth. The Ten Commandments are not the only revelation that Moses receives. So he receives, when you, when you dig into the story, he receives a lot more. He receives a message about heaven and hell. He receives... A message, a revelation about what kind of du'a to use and, and to teach the people how to pray and to teach the people how to ask. He receives message about what will come after the people of the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad Because one of the things that we believe in our belief system is that all of the prophets that had a message also taught their people that at the end of time Prophet Muhammad will come. So this is also very rich in the story of Sayyidina Musa salam. So Moses receives a, a, a large revelation. Whereas some of the MBA we talked about up until now received like a executive summary uh, re- revelation. But Moses' is, revelation is very, very intricate, you know, with a sharia, uh, with a, a way of life and a way of conduct. And the story is he's going to receive the revelation in this very, you know, uh, fantastical way, uh, physically, and his people are always veering away from him. And the story of Moses and Bani Israel in this, in this, um, you know, uh, 
wandering period in the desert culminates in the story of the cow, of which Surah Al-Baqarah is, is, is revealed, and, and we can end with this story, in which Moses tells the people, Allah has asked that you sacrifice a cow. So they say, well, which cow? Uh, that's that we don't understand. So Moses says, Allah says the cow should be like this, not too old, not too young. And they say, okay, well, what kind of color cow? Because we don't understand what that means. That could be any cow. So, well, it should be a little bit on the yellow side. Well, that we still don't understand. And back and forth and back and forth. Now, the, the story of the cow in the Quran is very short. It's about a page long, or maybe half a page long. But the whole surah of Al-Baqarah is talked, is labeled, is named because of this story. And the lesson of this story, one of the lessons of the story for us, is about too much asking. When it comes to matters of faith, not not the questions that we have, that's what I, not what I mean, but asking, you know, we know what we're supposed to do, so just do it. But because they keep asking, what became something that was very wide, became narrower and narrower and narrower. And I have seen this happen before, when people will go and ask like a Mufti a question, and the Mufti, I know the answer because I've heard it before, but the Mufti will give them a very general, yeah, you know, just, that's fine. Well, I don't understand, what do you mean? And, and the person will end up, at the end of the conversation, that what was permissible, now is not permissible anymore. And then now they've created like this, this you know, problem for themselves. <coughs> so, one of the uh, traits that we've lost a little bit of in, in, in Islam, is when we know we're supposed to do something, just do it the best you can, and don't, you know... Uh, don't go too far with the questions because you might reverse it. So a, a very common example is for people that are, are very uh, strict with what they eat. Um, is this restaurant halal? And somebody says, yeah, it's, it's halal. You know, okay, that's it, it's halal. Don't, don't, don't ask. Don't go there and add. That's it, it's halal. Don't mess it up for the rest of us. <laughs> if it says it's halal on, on the app, then it's, then it's halal. You know, if the butcher says that, that's it, just leave it at that. You don't have to investigate. And I have seen this too. And there are many places that I would, li- I would like to go that I don't go to anymore because somebody asked too many questions. <coughs> you go to somebody's house. I don't know about all food examples. You go to somebody's house. And they listen. Just assume that the food they're giving you is halal. Don't ask them. Don't be that person that asks and then just ruin the mood for everyone. If you go to a Muslim's house, assume that they're giving you something that's, that's halal. Don't, don't assume that it's haram. You don't have to ask. Uh, but sometimes our nature, our nafs gets in the way we want to ask and we want to, we want to force the thing. And that's not really our way. The, the, the Muslim way is just sort of, you know, don't ask. Just go with the flow. You know what you're supposed to do and things like that. If you feel something is wrong, then maybe you desist yourself, but you don't have to spread that and ruin that for other people. Um, and, I mean, many, many, I mean, like, literally hundreds of, I've seen hundreds of examples of this, of people coming to ask, and the, 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 the one answering just wants to just leave it. But the person keeps asking and keep asking and keep asking and keep asking, and this is why we have this story. Is to remind us, Allah says, slaughter the cow. Just slaughter a cow. Any cow will do. But now they've made it so restrictive. It has to be this age, it has to be this color, it can't eat this, it has to eat that. And, they slaughtered the cow, but they almost weren't going to do it. So, when we, we know we're supposed to do something, just do it. If somebody says something, you just go with it. Within reason. I mean, I'm sure everyone will come up with another... Uh, 
counter uh, example, but the idea is to do this within reason. And to not make something that is permissible, haram. That's the goal. If we know something is... The, the, the natural disposition of things for Muslims is that it's permissible. So we just go with it until we find out that it's not, for whatever reason. When we ask too much, we will make the permissible impermissible, and we will close doors. And we don't want to close doors, we want the doors to remain open. That's, that's the lesson. We'll end with that, inshallah. And maybe next time we'll try to wrap up with Moses and the Khidr, and, uh, and the passing of Moses, inshallah. Anything else that's burning before we... I think it's time to pray. Something is burning? Okay. Is it something permissible for what? Yeah, the, 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 the person that gives the khutbah, the jummah khutbah does not have to be married. That's not a condition. They just have to know how to lead the khutbah. And... Uh, um, That's different, but, 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 the, but him having to be married is not a condition. The most important, what? Morale, I mean, there should be a, you know, a moral person. But, but the, the point, the most important thing for the khutbah now is that the khatib does not make the people fall asleep. So when I give the khutbah, I think maybe like 2-3% people fall asleep. I'm saying that if I go up to 7%, then there's a problem. Then Brother Nasser is going to have a talk with me and we're going to have to change, you know, change, change how... So the most important thing to not make the people fall asleep is to not speak for too long. That's also very important. And to not speak for too long, the khatib needs to know that the khutbah, there are two khutbahs. The first khutbah, that's the actual message. The second khutbah is only for du'a. The second khutbah is not a second speech. So sometimes you go to a mosque, and the, the, the khatib, he has like five topics in the first khutbah, and in the second khutbah, he has like five other topics. That's not how the khutbah is supposed to go. A bachelor can lead the... Uh, Anas leads the prayer, he's a bachelor, he's okay. <laughs> Jummah is okay. The ba- a bachelor can lead the... And maybe we should let the bachelors lead the Jummah so people know that they're not married and they can see them and then, you know, maybe we can match them. That would be another a matchmaking uh, skill. The bachelor khatib program at ICCP. Wallahu ta'ala a'la wa'alam.